Hello, everyone. We're back. We're back. Happy New Year. We're in 2016 or so, uh, you know, so we've been told, right? I mean, like, time seems to have moved on in a somewhat linear fashion. And so here we are, New Year, not new me. I'm not changing anything about myself. God, I'm perfect. Uh, <laughs> you're all perfect, too, and I hope you don't change anything about yourselves. resolutions per se but I think every couple months or so I like get sort of down about like not being single but like about dating it sort of bums me out and I remember one of my friends told me if you want to like find someone even if you just want to find someone to like casually have sex with you got to put the work in do you know what I mean you almost got to treat it a little bit like a job so every couple of months, I think about this advice and I just open Tinder again. This is like a hot tip for me to you if your profile is like three paragraphs. Even if you're like Tom Hardy, if your profile on Tinder is three paragraphs, like you're out. Everything you own in a box to the left, you understand? I don't like that. I feel like Tinder is like very superficial. I need one line, I need you to make a joke, you know? Anyways. <laughs> So that happened to me again recently. I was on Tinder, just, you know, swiping mainly left, but uh, occasionally swiping right. Um, never super liking people. Don't do that, it's weird. I don't like it at all. I matched with this man on Tinder. We started chatting. As these things are wont to do, we took it off of Tinder to a different medium. He's out of the country when we're talking, so we end up chatting on WhatsApp. That is correct. Ladies and gentlemen, in the year of our Lord 2016, I am flirting with a man on WhatsApp. I know. So, whatever, we're chatting. He seems nice and like a regular human person that I could have a beer with. I think the inevitable thing you talk about with people that you meet over the internet for dating purposes is eventually someone brings up like, why are you on this? Like, have you had fruitful relationships with people? Like, what are you looking for? Why are you single? All of that kind of stuff. So we're having like that sort of like meta conversation. The first thing he said that was like sus was that he said that he was single because women these days do not want to have children, which uh, I can tell you is just untrue. I have lots of friends with kids. So I'm here to tell you that 2016, there are women out here, they want to have kids. I don't know if they want to be accosted about their choices of childbearing and rearing from a Tinder conversation, but uh, nevertheless. So that was like the beginnings of this sus conversation that essentially ended with him telling me that we live in a post-feminist society. At which point I was like, well, I just had a very special version of catfishing happen to me. tricked me. He tricked me into thinking he was a human person that I would like to have a drink with. 
And then, a couple hours later, he's telling me we live in a post-feminist society. Like, I don't, I don't, you know, when you get tricked, you feel a little dumb. I was like, how did I not? But I don't think there were any signs, you guys. Honestly, I don't. I think that sometimes people just disappoint you. <laughs> so I don't know. I think maybe the lesson here is don't put anyone on a pedestal, but don't even let any person you meet on Tinder sit down until you're sure of it. You got to not even let them have a chair until you're sure that they're not going to say shit like we live in a post-feminist society. Because once you start explaining why and how that is a lie, you get, you know, it gets, it gets messy is what I would say. I don't think that I'm gonna die alone, and I don't really care, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, don't we all die alone? Follow me on Twitter for more fake deep thoughts like that, right? You know, in 2016, let's try to not get feminist catfished by people online. <laughs> That's my New Year's resolution is, okay, I have two New Year's resolutions. One of them is to make more casual situations filled with sexual tension just because I wish that my life was more like The Good Wife. And the other is that don't let people feminist catfish you. It's not fun. Anyways, you guys, I've missed you. We've been out of town. We weren't out of town. <laughs> we were here. But we skipped a couple weeks with episodes. But this week, we got a real doozy. We have a friggin' awesome guest on this week. Uh, Denise Balkasoon. She might not have a name that you recognize, but I promise you, you have read her work and you have loved it. Uh, Denise was a freelance writer for a decade, uh, wrote for pretty much every major publication in this country. Uh, and now she is the editor of the life section at the Globe and Mail. Uh, and she's doing a bang up job. And her and I have a, what I think is a really fun and interesting conversation, but I might be a little bit biased. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. I hope you enjoy Denise Balkasoon. I hope you look her up and realize how much of her writing you've actually read. Okay. I love ya. Bye. Like, I've read your writing for a while. I feel like I had a thing where I didn't realize I could follow, like, journalists in the way I... Yeah follow like fiction writers or whatever um so that sort of makes me feel like I know you even though I don't <laughs> all right that's nice <laughs> do you get that a lot are people like overly um, personal with you because you're a writer sometimes once a guy came up to me at yoga and said you're better looking in person <laughs> and I was like first of all thanks I guess don't talk to people at yoga ever yeah. we're all here to do our own thing um, my best friend was with me then and she started laughing and she's like, you're famous. And I don't, yeah, that was strange, but no, not really. I mean, I think I like the familiarity of social media mm -hmm. more often than not. One of my favorite things that you wrote this year was the piece on online friendships, mm -hmm. uh, which I thought was really lovely. It's like, yeah. I have lots of friends who live in Toronto who I never would have known without yep. social media, like let alone people I know now, like all over the world. Was there something that prompted you to write that now or was it something you'd had, you've been thinking about um, for a while or? I think what prompted me to write it mainly is that those girls, the American women um, who I've been friends with for so long, I miss them a lot because now, you know, we're all older and we have kids and we don't actually get to hang out in real life as much as we used to. Um, and then also, you know, people just like dump on the internet a lot 
fair enough. You mm-hmm. know, if you if you are getting targeted by terrible commenters or even movements that have gone beyond terrible commenting, like there's a lot of bad stuff that happens there. And so I just felt like countering that and just pointing out that also some wonderful things happen and real relationships. And um, one of the guys I interviewed uh, was was gay, and he's from a very insular Christian sect that now I can't remember the, the name Hutterites. of. Yeah, the yeah. Hutterites. Sorry, I come from a Mennonite zone, so I'm yeah. sort of familiar with yeah. all those <laughs> different, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, um, and so he, through the internet, realized that being gay was a thing and then spoke to other gay people and spoke to other gay Hutterites and his whole coming out process and like self-actualization happened largely because of social media. And so I just wanted to say, you know, it's not all that bad all the time. Yeah, I thought that was so fascinating, especially the part there was like um, what sort of had happened was that he had made a private Facebook group and one of the men that was on it was like a 40-year-old guy from somewhere in the States who was like, I literally never realized I could be gay until I found this group. Yeah. And that's like... I think it's really wonderful. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, because like I definitely know people who have been experienced targeted harassment online. I have mm-hmm. had people say some not so nice things to me mm-hmm. online, but generally, like some of the people I'm closest to, I've met mm-hmm. like via the internet. I always think, especially when I was growing up, uh, the internet was still very much like j- chat rooms. Yeah, Do you know what I mean. Yeah. And, like, well, that's where I met my friends. Yeah, yeah. like weird or on a bulletin boards. board. Yeah. yeah. The internet. What a place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that you liked that piece because I was afraid that it was too short and I didn't really get across like how much I love those girls mm-hmm. and how much we are the part of the fabric of each other's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, I thought you did a great job of like showing how close you were to them. But like I would 100% read like a book about – do you know what I mean? Like I would yeah. read like a Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants not to like yeah. <laughs> make your beautiful years-long friendship <laughs> into a, a weird <laughs> YA book. But you know what I mean? Like That book's okay. Yeah. The second and third one aren't so good. The I'm, first one's good. I'm extremely bad at – Series yeah. of books. Like I've read the first Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. I've read I read the first in a lot of series of books and been like, nailed it. <laughs> I know exactly what's <laughs> happening. <laughs> it's true though. The first is usually the best one. Yeah. Yeah. And then people I mean, maybe I've definitely read all of Harry Potter, but like <laughs> that's I haven't read any Harry Potter. Really? It's... I'm sort of saving it for a terrible illness or something. Oh. Like you also yeah. have kids, right? Yeah. Are your kids like reading age? No, he's two. Okay. Um, he loves it when we read to him. Yeah, maybe I could save it for yeah. like he's Harry Potter age. That's a great idea. You freelance for 10, 11 years. Yep. And you recently started at The Globe. I mean, I've been writing for The Globe Freelance probably since I began freelancing mm-hmm. in, like, 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, then I was officially hired in September, which um, I was kind of scared about having a job. Like, mm-hmm. I was scared about 
having clean clothes and talking to other people every day. Um, but it's been pretty awesome. So since September, I am an editor in the feature section. I mostly work in the life section, um, and I largely work on food pieces. And so we're trying to make the life section, otherwise known as the women's pages, <laughs> um, you know, hefty as well as really relatable because life, you know, the women's pages doesn't have to be an insult. Women are pretty great. Yeah. And stories that are relevant to our lives are pretty great. And not just the women's pages. You know, family life. We want to get more dads in there. We mm -hmm. want to get more guys in there. Um, so I edit in the life section. And then I also write a column every two weeks. Um, and that just runs in the regular comment section. And they let me write whatever I want. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. It's awesome. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really, you know, it's a very vulnerable thing to write a column. Mm -hmm. And so to actually do it from the bosom of the globe where yeah. I can go talk to my editor and talk to other smart people there and talk to beat reporters. Like I, I wrote about Ontario's decision um, to fund a couple of IVF cycles or one mm -hmm. IVF cycle um, for women under 43, I think. And it was so wonderful to be able to talk to the health reporter, Liz Church, and be like, tell me everything you know before I have to have an opinion. Like, it's it's really nice to be part of that team. That's really uh, awesome. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. And then, so that's like my paid work. And then I also have been um, editor of the Ethnic Isle. Um, Chantal Braganza is becoming more and more the editor. I'm just the publisher, the one who like throws all the dollar bills around. Um, <laughs> the Ethnic Isle is is, I guess, a blog, if that's still a word. Maybe it's a digital magazine. Um, it's been around for four and a half years. And uh, I launched it with a bunch of people that I met on Twitter because during the Rob Ford election, the one where he was elected in 2010, um, as soon as it became really clear that he was a viable candidate, there started to be a lot of unhappiness, which is fair enough. I'm not a Rob Ford fan. But that unhappiness was like, Everyone in the suburbs who's voting for Rob Ford is an idiot. Mm -hmm. And because the suburbs in Toronto are way more racialized than downtown and also impoverished, um, that conversation to me seemed like there was a race component there. Like mm -hmm. you can't say that group of people who happens to be um, less white than this group of people is stupid without – <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, like, is it quote unquote racist? I don't know if it makes you unhappy to say so. No, it's not racist. Um, <laughs> but it is racialized. And so uh, it just made me feel again like there were all these conversations that were just not being had in any way that we could have access to. And so myself um, and Navneet Alang, who writes for Hazlitt on occasion, um, basically started a blog. We got some other people who felt sort of the same way. And we're just mm -hmm. like, okay, what are we going to talk about? And I was just thinking about it because our first theme was when I was racist. And so we each talked about a time when we had been racist. And that was a really important tone setting exercise for me because mm -hmm. um, a lot of the times in any sort of conversation about identity, it's always about putting the blame somewhere else and always about talking about when... I, the writer or the person who's creating, has been wronged. And I mean, I've been wronged lots of times, but I think uh, it's always been a very complicated issue mm -hmm. in my mind, like identity where we are marginalized and where we are privileged and how that sort of interplays day to day. And so um, I guess that's been a thread through the ethnic aisle all the way through because our event, um, the panel was called What is Intersectionality Anyway? Um, and so intersectionality is a word that I learned first emerged in the late 80s and 
you know, I took women's studies in the 90s and I don't remember hearing about it. Mm -hmm. And maybe it just slipped my mind. But then, you know, it didn't come forth very strongly, if so. Um, And it was invented by an African-American legal scholar named Kimberly Crenshaw. And the idea is just for her, you know, as a black woman, it's like if something happened to her, is it because she's a woman? Is it because she's black? Is it because, you know, maybe she had her hair in braids that day? And just the idea that like all of our identities intersect and whether that's when we are marginalized or when we are privileged, they all intersect in all of our interactions. So I just started hearing this word again probably three years Mm -hmm. ago. I have a personal aversion to being overly academic because Mm -hmm. as a journalist, I just really want things to be clear and understandable and accessible. But at the same time, I found the concept useful as, you know, a woman of color. And so I just thought we should invite some people who either the word is relevant to or who actively think about the word to come and talk about it. And so they were Sadia Muzaffar, who runs Tech Girls Canada, which mm-hmm. is about women in the science, tech, engineering, math professions. Um, we had a Tanika Charles, who is Trinidadian, Canadian. Um, she's black. She sings soul. We had Aisha Alpha, um, who she's grew up. She's a lovely comedian. Yeah, she's I hilarious. She's yeah. Great, yeah, and her dad is Nigerian, and her mom is from Manitoba or outside Manitoba. And then Lali Muhammad, who was born in East Africa, and he um, is queer and does a lot of, like, he, he was probably the most academic on the panel in terms of doing like activisty work mm-hmm. around analyzing these sorts of terms or these sorts of ideas and then diffusing them out into the real world. Um, and so everyone just talked about it. And I thought it was great because, you know, we had someone like Lolly on one hand who was like, this is a very useful term because um, it puts a name to something that so many people experience every day and it gives us a way to understand our experiences to someone like Tanika who is like, I don't even, you know, I am a black woman. So technically this term is made for me. And Mm -hmm. I never heard it till last week when you asked me to be on this panel. And like, I am just out there living my life. And I don't know if this word means very much to me. It was really great. And everyone had a lot to say about the way their multiple identities stack on top of each other. And, um, you know, when they go into a space, what they feel like they are representing or putting forward and what they feel they might be like holding back or, you know, pulling back with. Um, Yeah, and everyone really wanted to talk about it. It was awesome. To me, I think maybe the idea of a panel discussion sounds like sort of boring to go to, but like I've... Anytime they're, like, thoughtfully put together and, like, there's Mm -hmm. a good theme and, like, everyone on it's super smart, it's just, like, I've always had such a friggin' lovely time at them and I've, like, Mm -hmm. always come away learning so much. Did you have audience participate? Yeah, we had a couple questions. Um, I mean, one of them was about, like, how multiculturalism works with the Indigenous experience in Canada. And so for anyone who's listening who is an Indigenous creator that wants to get involved with the Ethnic Isle, please get in touch. And we do pay now. Um... Because that's definitely like one of my own personal knowledge mm-hmm. gaps, and I would like to figure that out for yeah. myself as well. You know, a lot of people just sort of like audience questions are great, but a lot of the time it's someone like, "This was so great," and I'll tell you I was great. And I was like, "That's cool." Yeah. Um, oh man, <laughs> audience questions are my least favorite part of any talk. Yeah. I I once saw Tom King speak, mm-hmm. do like a reading, and then speak, yeah. and then like seven 
old white ladies definitely asked the same question, which was like, what can we as white people do to help the plight of Native Canadians? Yeah. And he was like, very gently was like, that's super racist. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was like, you know what I mean? He was like so gentle and so smart and so yeah. diplomatic about it. And then like. It just kept coming up, and I was like, oh, the audience portion of this is making me very anxious. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I just wish we could all stop talking now. Yeah. Um, so it's always nice when, like, the audience participation can be mm-hmm. as thoughtful as the panelists, because that's not always the case. write about pop culture a lot of your stuff I feel like is yeah. more like sort of uh personal essay or like very journalistic mm-hmm. but like you seem to know the crap done about pop culture uh, no um no I don't really I don't know anything about music anymore it's super painful and sad to me oh, um no I think when the whole blurred lines thing was happening mm-hmm. um there was a column in McLean's that was like, why are we picking on Robin Thicke for being white? Um, <laughs> so I addressed that in my column. Or like, oh, oh, it was that, you know, that African-American musicians can get away with sexism and Robin Thicke can't. That was the argument being made. Oh, um, claims. Yeah, so I, I dealt with that. Uh, no, because I feel... I don't know why. I don't know. I guess I've never really been an arts writer. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not my area of expertise. I've sort of dabbled in like arts and style and books and stuff. Um, But I guess like more current affairs, newsy, a newsy take is just where I ended up. Did you like know you always wanted to sort of have that bent in your writing or? Probably. Probably. Um, I mean... Hmm. I don't really know. I like one of my main, when I was doing more reporting, one of my main things was to tell stories about Toronto that I don't feel are being told. Mm-hmm. And so that ends up being sort of newsy and it ends up being current affairs because, um, you know, I just would like pitch and pitch and pitch and pitch and um, everyone would be like, no, 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 no. And then something terrible would happen. And then they'd be like, oh, yes, can you actually do that story? Actually, you know, in... Uh, the spring when Lifeline Syria, which is helping private sponsors link with Syrian refugees, um, they launched in the late winter, early spring. And I pitched that story then and not to the Globe where I work now, to the credit of the Globe. I did not pitch it to them. Um, And I was told that it wasn't really working, that this wasn't really a great pitch and that the people who were heading up Lifeline Syria were too great. They were too nice. There's nothing to say there about nice people. Um, and that the actual refugees were not here yet. So how could we do a story about them? And then the day that the Alan Curdy picture um, was on the front page and the homepage of every single news site in the world, uh, the same editor got back to me and said, you know that story, we should do that story now. And I was like, guess what? I work at the Globe now. And I assigned that story a month ago because, um, which is not to say that I'm prescient or anything like that. I just think that there are a lot of barriers to seeing news and ideas in a different way than they have been seen for ever. 
and partially just out of desperation to see a Toronto that like felt relevant to me. That was that was one of my main motivations for the kind of stories that I wanted to do. So did starting the ethnic owl for you come out of this sort of place where you were like, oh, no one wants to hear this like story about these people doing all this great shit for Syrian refugees until something yeah. god awful happens. Yeah. Uh, that's so like it's it's really disheartening that to me mm-hmm. that you would be like pitch that kind of thing and someone would be like mm, and not until there's a tragedy do I yeah. want to talk about that in yeah. like any sort of mainstream media context yeah and like a lot of the stuff the stuff that I've read from the ethnic mm-hmm. all is like pretty positive like there's not yeah. a lot of like this incredible tra- I mean obviously like like you said, it's mm-hmm. nuanced. It's like more in depth than like the mainstream media usually wants to cover it. But it seems like to have an overall positive mm-hmm. tone to it. Um, we just try to keep it balanced because I think one of the other things that happens with especially racialized communities is that you only hear about them when something terrible mm-hmm. happens, you know. So it's like, oh, there's a shooting or all the raids on Dixon when Rob Ford was mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only time that reporters head out to those neighborhoods. So we've definitely covered crappy things that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Anupa wrote about Jermaine Carby, who was shot mm-hmm. by police in Brampton. And we had in the last one a Q&A with a researcher in Nova Scotia who's looking at how it is that all these toxic sites and garbage dumps always end up near where black people and indigenous people live. Um, but I don't think it's trying to have a positive spin. Um, I just want it to be balanced. Yeah. I want it to be like funny and approachable as well as like really serious and in-depth sometimes. You're, like, so talented and busy, and I, like, can barely remember to feed my cat. And you're like, I take care of a human being and make him oatmeal every day. I'm like, I don't understand. No, most days he has yogurt. (laughs) It just comes out of the tub. (laughs) Yeah, I am really busy. You know, it's so interesting. I just started this job at the Globe. Uh, I was really afraid of not having any time. Um, And I don't have any time, but in a way, it's all my time is so much more, like, effective and enjoyable because um, I was spending a lot of time just sitting around wondering why I was so ineffective. And so (laughs) it's like nice. I mean, obviously, I wish that he would sleep better, my son. But other than that, it's like, yeah, busy in a good way right now. Did you find it was super weird going from freelancing as a, like, Mm -hmm. childless person to freelancing with a little human uh, next to you? Yes, Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons I decided I wanted a job is because my office turned into his bedroom and then I was stuck Mm. in the basement with all of our dirty laundry. Um, (laughs) Really inspiring. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like it was very crazy being self-employed and being on supposed mat leave. I mean, I didn't really I didn't take a year off partially because of the money, but also partially because I didn't want anyone to forget about me. Mm. It wasn't like I had a job that was waiting for me. And so I started writing my column at the globe and at the grid again when he was three months old and my mom would just sort of come over and in retrospect that's totally insane yeah (laughs) (laughs) I can't even it's just so crazy like we weren't sleeping at all and everything was chaos um yeah props to all the self-employed parents out there um especially especially the birth parents (laughs) um 
So it was really nuts. But, you know, a lot of cliches are so true. Like so much of my life now is like focused. Like I know who are the people I want to hang out with Mm -hmm. and what are the things that I want to do and what are the things that are immediate no's um, and why it's so important to just like put my phone in a different room and just hang out with my son and read the same book 12 times in a row or like make the same tower that he smashes 12 times in a row. Like, yeah, it's it's nice. That's so nice. Cause, it's pretty great. Yeah. I mean, I love other people's kids. Having my own children is, like, terrifying to me. Yeah. It's pretty um, scary. I remember one of my friends, people kept being like, are you ready? And she was like, I have no fucking idea. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I've never done this before. Like, am I ready? Yeah. Sure, I'm ready to give birth. But, like, even that, I'm not totally sure mm-hmm. if I'm <laughs> mentally and physically ready for it. Like, I suppose I will be. You know what I mean? Um, I also watched the entire five seasons of Friday Night Lights. <laughs> great and excellent TV show. So, oh you my know. God. It, that, yeah. There's something about the first season of that TV show that's, like, immensely mm-hmm. soothing to me. Yeah. Oh, man. I wish I had, like, a person in my life that would give me pep talks, like, mm-hmm. like, like Eric. Coach, yeah, like Coach Taylor. Coach. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Or Tammy. Oh, my God. Have you mm-hmm. watched Nashville? Yes. Yeah, really a little want, bit. I want to get into it because, like, mm-hmm. I love her. Yeah. It's great. It depends if you like soaps. And I do. The music is surprisingly good. Yeah, it's T-Bone <laughs> Burnett. Yeah. Um, yeah. People have told me it's, like, the less cool version of Empire. Yeah. <laughs> or the, like country music version of it. Yeah, well, I haven't watched Empire yet, but oh. I feel like this winter. Yeah, you got to do it. It's the if, time. If you like soaps mm-hmm. and you like a show backed by good music, because it's like Timbaland does yep. the sh- music for Empire or whatever, and it's like a very well-written soap. Mm-hmm. It's like six million things happen in episode and yeah. like, oh, shit, <laughs> like all the time, which yeah. I sort of love in TV. I'm a bit of a sucker for that. I love it. Um, I'm watching How to Get Away with Murder right now, which is so awesome. And I love Viola Davis so much. My husband is a little bit like, oh, I'm sorry I'm saying this. He's like, wait, who is that person? Wait, is she the killer? Wait. Like, wait, wait. But then he'll always be like, let's watch another one. Why? Why Are you even watching it? Like, why do you want to watch it? But he's, you know, he's... He'll watch it for the music and, like, the great atmosphere mm-hmm. and everything, and he doesn't even care that much about the plot sometimes. So That's so funny. Yeah. I feel like that's 100% what watching TV with my mom is like. <laughs> if it's something that she's not into, she'll just, like, zone out, and then 10 minutes later she'll be like, wait. I'll be like, if you just, you know what? Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've sat yeah. through lots of bad TV. My mom loves bad reality TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, like what? Uh, like... So you think you can dance? Although I do yeah. love that show. I'm yeah. not out here to slander that. But like every like singing TV show, yeah. my mom's got that shit. Yeah. Dancing with the stars, any bachelor bachelorette type oh. situation. Yeah, was really. Well, I once had a, a bad breakup and I had to move back mm-hmm. in with her for six months, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh god, I've never watched. The Bachelor before. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's just depressing. I've only watched like two episodes. The whole thing is so like depressing and creepy and weird and infuriating. It's like, like, I mean, <sighs> it makes me feel like 
people watch that and I'm like, yeah, this is why so many people hate women. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because, like, someone high up at reality TV is like, let's orchestrate this shit to make women look as insane as possible. Yep. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I'm like, it's just that these people all want to be on TV. You know what yeah. I mean? It has nothing really to do with, like, thinking love. you're going to find love yeah. on television. Yeah. I was into the Jersey Shore for, like, oh. one second, and then I realized that it made me angry, like, not at the show, <laughs> but because they're fighting so much and they're getting into scraps and whatever. I was, like, afterward, I'd be like, ooh, I just want to fight someone, uh, and, like, get into arguments. And you so, like, go down to Queen's Key. You're yeah, like, someone fight me. Yeah. But that show and The Bachelor, like, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, it's so strange that people will have sex <laughs> oh man with like the black light or whatever it is like you can't really Ooh. tell what's going on like really really how much they don't get paid or they do get paid not very much they get paid i think what happens in reality tv is if your shit becomes successful you end up getting paid in like wild endorsements yeah and you can be like uh drinking like energy drinks on instagram and get money for yeah, yeah. or whatever i yeah. don't know how any of that works yeah the sex um, part was always awful to me it's so weird mm-hmm. and i'm i was i mean part of me wants to think that like it does it's not actually happening but then i'm like i don't it's know totally happening people are like want to be on tv it's never going to end now is it though i mean oh, even no. if it gets marginalized on mainstream tv mm-hmm. it's forever on the internet now oh yeah yeah and even, like, if you think about, like, TLC or whatever, mm-hmm. like, that the learning channel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, even when I was a kid, it was just surgery <laughs> shows and trading spaces. <laughs> like, surgery shows you kind of can call the learning channel. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, my sister was a big fan of having those on while we ate dinner, and I was like, I'm yeah. going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. That's disgusting. I also wanted to ask you about Kitchen Bitches, the, like, Gen Ag conference, Um, I guess, for people who are not from Toronto Mm -hmm. um, that might be listening to this. uh, Gen Ag runs a couple restaurants here. One of them is very uh, well-known. It's called The Black Cuff. Mm -hmm. And she ran a sort of conference this summer about women in the restaurant industry and Mm -hmm. the food industry. Um, what made you want to – I know I've read uh, mm-hmm. a bit of your writing about uh, food. I, again, really liked your piece. Uh, I think it came out on Canada Day. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did that sort of come about? Jen and I actually went to high school together. Cute. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny because she's such a strong personality and everyone's like, what was she like in high school? I'm like, pretty much exactly like that. <laughs> um, and so after I wrote the Canada Day piece, which was about – the idea, like, what is Canadian food? People are always asking. I think we've agreed that the only Canadian dishes are Quebecois dishes, which, yeah. um, tortier and poutine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wrote about the idea that people always say Canada or at least North America, you know, our food is about, it's about multiculturalism and it's about so many immigrants have come here and brought their delicious foods and sort of the, the great parts and the pitfalls of that, you know, mm-hmm. one of the pitfalls being that um, we can sort of adopt each other's foods and be like, oh, I love kimchi and not actually know anything about Korea mm-hmm. or care to know anything um, about where these foods come from. And we can sort of make them trendy and like, 
you know, there's tons of foods that are being cooked right now in the suburbs, either in people's homes or in little restaurants and takeout shops um, that we don't even know about. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden one person will decide to bring it downtown and good for them too. Um, But that doesn't mean the food just got invented. Yeah. Oh my God. That is a very, I don't know if that's like a Toronto thing. I don't think so. Yeah. It feels very suburbs to city like. Yeah. Yeah, and so I wrote about that, and uh, Jen asked if I wanted to be on the panel, and I said yes. Um, I mean, food, like you asked, do I write about arts? Not really, but in terms of culture, probably food is something that I've written about steadily, because mm-hmm. um, I guess I have a greater understanding of what my own ideas are around mm-hmm. it. Um, I thought it was really great. I mean, her turnout was crazy. Like, that room was just packed, and plus she's Jen, so she talked to everyone into giving her, like, really fancy wines yeah. and cheese. <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't even know a lot of the things about, you know, how cooks are treated in the kitchen versus how a server is treated. And so on one hand, a server is going to have to take on a lot more like day-to-day sexism from customers Mm -hmm. who just like often treat servers, especially female servers, as though, you know, do you come with the meal? Yeah. Right? Yep. Um, But then in the back, like there's this idea, there's a very macho, I guess, culture in the kitchen where um, you can't be a girl and, you know, you can't be queer and you have to be tough and that sort of tough attitude means that sexism and sexist jokes are like part of the culture. And if you don't like it, you're a wuss, that sort of stuff. Like I really, I really learned a lot about that. So. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, I have one of my very good friends worked in fine dining for a long time as like a server and a bartender. Mm -hmm. I remember one of the last jobs she was at, she was just like, you know, like we're all, it was a small restaurant. She was like, Mm -hmm. everyone here talks about like, being family, like having this work family or whatever. And she's like, but I like come in here and you say some of the most abhorrently sexist shit to me that like I've ever heard. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah. that's, you know, she's like, it's bad for my like mental health. It's bad for my anxiety. Like I can't, yeah. like I can't come into work and have this be the environment that I deal with. And then you guys are just like, come on, we're just joking. Yeah. Like that whole, and I've only ever, yeah, pretty much any woman that I know has almost always worked, like, in the front of house. Mm -hmm. And if they work in the kitchen, it's like, you know, you're running with the big dogs and it's, like, all Mm -hmm. dudes and they're all very, like, aggressive in that way. Yeah. It's funny because to me, like, in my family, Mm -hmm. all of the men can cook, but, like, all of the women are the cooks. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's so many things about that, right? Just historically, women have been responsible for feeding families on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a kitchen, it's like the star all of a sudden becomes the man. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things I'm thinking about trying to figure out, probably not for myself, but like for the food section of the globe, is um, this idea that a pastry chef can have normal hours. And that's why pastry chefs are more often mm-hmm. women. And like, why can they have normal hours? I don't really know because I don't know very much about kitchens. But it's sort of the same thing, you know? It's like... Women do the grunt work and then men take all the celebrity status. Like, Yeah. I remember even reading like a Bourdain book like a a long time ago where he was like, well, the best pastry chefs are always women. Yeah. It's always women. you got to find a good woman to work as best pastry chef in your restaurant. Yeah. And I was like, why? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, why is that? Yeah. And it's so interesting too because like baking is so delicate and 
chemical. I mm-hmm. mean, it's like science. Yeah. But then at the same time, like dessert is not essential to your I mean, it's essential to your life, but actually, you know, like we have to eat our meal to live, but then we don't really need to eat a restaurant meal to live. You know, it's not as if like all these crazy concoctions of like giant hunks of meat are actually what we need to live. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, the whole macho-ness really, I'm also reading this book right now called Meat Hooked, which is coming out in February. And it's not, um, it's just about like how meat became such a big part of culture and a lot of it is about affluence because, I mean, my parents told me this, you know, when I became a vegetarian very briefly as a teenager, uh, I would get all these exotic vegetables and things that were really expensive and my dad was like, you know, when I was a vegetarian, it was because I was poor, like he grew up on a farm in yeah. Trinidad um, and so for a lot of immigrants, being able to eat meat is a sign that you've made it or a sign that you're no longer poor. Um, Have you watched the series Mind of a Chef? The, no, like, no, I heard, um, I heard it's good. So it's like David Chang is like the first yeah, season. Yeah, David Chang is like a brilliant mm-hmm. chef or whatever. Like he's also super cute. I'm always mm-hmm. like, David Chang, let's get married. <laughs> um, make me delicious food. But the show is very like – it's him, and then they have another season where it's, like, another dude, and then they have a woman, mm-hmm. and she's a British woman, and she's a chef. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she specifically talks about, she's like, oh, I was not going to be a pastry chef. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's where everyone was like, oh, you're a woman, you want to go to uh, cooking school? You can be a pastry She was like, hell yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. that's not what I'm doing. But she's, like, there's, you know, three or so seasons of that show. She's the only woman. Yeah. And, like, it's... Also, pretty much all white guys. Yeah. Like, there's an episode where they have a guy, half of the series is like a guy, he's a southern guy, Mm -hmm. and he's like, here's my top five favorite chefs in the South right now. They're all white guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was a really great piece on BBC about that a couple months ago, just like how the African Americans got taken out of Southern food as it becomes seen as like a real cuisine. Like, it's totally bananas. And like, (laughs) this dude at the end of his like half a a season Mm -hmm. of Mind of Chef goes to Senegal. Yeah. Because the whole time he's like, well, you know, like... West Africa, like all of it, like it's so like yeah. integral in the South's cooking. And I was like, then why do you only know white people yeah. that are Southern chefs? I was like, the cognitive dissonance there seemed insane yeah. to me. That he would go to yeah. Africa, which is like great, but. And I was like, I'm sure there must be like mm-hmm. black people that you know that make Southern food. Yep. But again, I think it's one of those things, uh, sort of like the suburb downtown thing Mm -hmm. in Toronto, which is um, from this BBC piece. I don't know what the name of it was, but like look up BBC Southern (laughs) Food. Um, And they were saying that, you know, in the downtowns of the American South, all the nice restaurants with tablecloths and stuff have white chefs. And then in order to eat food made by black chefs, you need to go out to the country and it's like someone's takeout spot and it's delicious, but it's not fancy. Yeah. And so it's also this idea that like fanciness somehow means it tastes better, which is like, you know, I've had conversations like this with friends that review restaurants about going out to Scarborough to eat because I say this place is delicious. There's no atmosphere. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, and I'm like, you know, but why do you need that atmosphere? Yeah. I mean, aside from the lighting, I hate fluorescent lights. But beyond yeah. that, like, are you just uncomfortable, number one? Because, yes, you are in the ethnic minority when you go there, mm-hmm. including me. Like, if I go to Gourmet Malaysia, like, it is probably all Asian and Southeast Asian people there. Um, does that make you uncomfortable? Like, is that your problem? Mm-hmm. And, like, why do you need to hear 
90s rap at every restaurant. <laughs> why can't you listen to like Korean pop, which, you know, like why, what is it exactly about the atmosphere? Like you're not on your anniversary dinner yeah. every single time you go out to eat. Um, as long as you can hear your friends talk yeah, and there are no fluorescent lights, like what exactly is it about the atmosphere that's so terrible when you go out to eat somewhere in the suburbs? And so I think that whole Southern food thing, it gets back to that too, is like, Sure. Sometimes you want to go eat in a restaurant where they clean up the table every time, mm-hmm. you know, you've had a dish or whatever. Someone but drizzle like, some shit on the, you know. I think also what makes people uncomfortable about going to a black restaurant in the South is like, yeah, there's black people there. <laughs> like, crazy idea. Um, yeah. But that's crazy, you know, to have like five chefs from the South and none of them are black and none of them are women. Yeah. So much of what he talked about was like, this connection between Africa, West Africa, and the South. And I was just like, because of slavery. Do you know what I mean? I was yeah. like, say it. Just say so it. So you never said slavery. No. Oh, my God. It was insane. Yeah. I was waiting. I watched the whole thing because I was like, at some point, you're going to acknowledge why. Yes. Right? Yeah. But it was like, yeah. It was insane. And then so you wonder, like, maybe he did say slavery and they edited it out. Yeah. Like, who's... But it's PBS. Ooh. Right. Okay, well, then that's I just felt weird. like I was like, PBS is not out here trying to get, like, advertising money yep. Yep. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, it's viewers like you and me that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. help them survive. Maybe that's just what it's like to be, to have gone through all the right channels to mm-hmm. be a chef. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. To have the pedigree and the sort of provenance and all of whatever that is yeah. that makes you a... Michelin star kind of dude or whatever. Oh, that's totally crazy. See, now I can't watch it. A couple people have told me to watch that show, and I just had a feeling it would be like that. And I felt sort of David Changed out at a point. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I felt like a lot of the stories that were in Lucky Peach were the same Mm -hmm. things that were on. And I was like, I get it. You got wasted and wandered around Japan and ate delicious foods. Yeah. You love ramen, we know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of my favorite chef shows, probably my favorite chef show and also one of my favorite guilty pleasure shows is MasterChef. Um, Hell yeah. It's so fun. And every season is fun because it's just crazy. Um, but this year, they Joe Bastianic is no longer on, which too bad because for my fuck, Mary kill. <laughs> you are mine, Joe. Um, and they replaced him with Christina Tosi, who is the pastry chef yep. for Momofuku. Um and I've never eaten any of her foods or anything. But I thought it was interesting because on one hand, they are taking dessert way more seriously now that she's mm-hmm. one of the judges. But then on the other hand, it's like when they have a dessert challenge and they run into the pantry to fill up their baskets, the basket now has like pink bows on mm-hmm. it. Like, is that oh. necessary? Really? Is that necessary? <laughs> yeah. That's so And so gross. it's like you've taken women or where women tend to end up more seriously. But at the same time, you're still like, well, let's not take it too seriously. Or like, yeah. Oh, that's a bummer. I haven't watched the new MasterChef. Yeah, it's still fun, but, you I know. like good cooking reality TV. Mm-hmm. That's another, like, genre of reality <laughs> TV I'm down with. Like, yeah. you put me in front of, like, five episodes of Chopped, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> as much as, like, sometimes the premise of that show makes me deeply angry, 100% I'm into it. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. Thank you again so much to Denise Balkasum for coming through. You guys, Google her, follow her on Twitter, get familiar. She's amazing. Cavern 
Secrets, as per usual, is brought to you by Hazlitt. It's hosted by, guess who? It's me, Laura Mitchell. Our theme was made by Bianca Giulione. It's produced by my very dear friend, Anshuman Idamsetti. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. (laughs) SoundCloud. Uh, We are all over the place. That is crazy. Uh, You can also find us on our website. We have a website because we're a professional business. Cavernofsecrets.com or on Twitter at Cavern of Secrets. If you like us and you like at all what we're doing, it would be very kind and lovely of you to rate us on iTunes. That would be extremely nice. And again, I'm Laura Mitchell. I'm going to be here until Hazlitt shuts this down because I've said fuck too much. So uh, I'll see you all in two weeks. (laughs) 